Rick Epin joins me on episode 37. Rick worked for Harney USA for 18 years and played a pivotal role in improving the quality of their harmonicas. While at Harney, he also developed the XB40, the all-bending harmonica. Rick is also an expert customizer of harmonicas and can be credited with the creation of embossing reeds to improve playability. Rick has a real passion for playing Irish music, to such an extent that he even moved to Ireland so he could immerse himself in the music. He has released several albums with notable Irish groups for us to enjoy his traditional music playing. Also adept at playing harmonica on a rack, perhaps with the less orthodox instruments of the concertina and the banjo. Hello, Rick Epping, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Neil. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure to have you on and your distinguished career in harmonica, which we'll get into. Darting off uh, about yourself, so I think you're originally born in California and then you now live in Ireland. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. What happened? What was the story about um, coming over to Ireland? Ever since I was uh, young, I kind of had a fascination with the music. There was an old 78 of uh, one album, 178 left of an album of uh, Leroy Anderson's Irish Suite, and there were two Irish tunes on it, and I used to listen to that as I was a little kid. And uh, once the folk revival in the late 50s started coming on, and, and I had an older brother that uh, kind of got me started, I was became mad for tunes. And uh, it didn't take long, too long before I found that a lot of the tunes that I was learning, Fisher's Hornpipe and other tunes, maybe from Doc Watson or others, were originally Irish. So I started looking for Irish tunes, and that was kind of the impetus to come over. And were you playing these on harmonica at this stage or other instruments? On the harmonica. Were these typically, you know, rick-to-tune diatonics at that stage? They were. My first two harmonicas were regular tin hall rick-to-tuned. They were actually at the bottom of my older brother's toy box. And uh, when he wasn't around, I was about four years old. I was rooting around through his toys and found them at the bottom. I kind of zeroed in on them, <laughs> grabbed them without delay. One of them was a uh, honer, basically marine bat, but it was a Steve Larravee Lone Star Rider model. The uh, Lone Star Rider was a radio cowboy because my brother, when he was young, it was would have been in the radio days. And that was the one of the harmonicas. And the other was a an all-plastic harmonica made by the Pro Company up in New Jersey. Plastic reeds and everything, but, which was surprisingly good in tune and everything. So they were my first two harmonicas. And then I kind of got, when I was a little older, uh, I went through a few other instruments, banjo and a couple other things. And then uh, I was about 12 or 13 when I, when I really started focusing in on the harmonica and bought a 12-hole marine band was the next harmonica I bought. And then I was 15 and my brother said, you should go down to the Ash Grove to see this guy, Sonny Terry. And so I bought my first 1896 tin hole after seeing Sonny Terry at the last 15. So that's good.
I mean, you, you started playing tunes. Did you then go to playing some blues as well? Yeah, no, the blues. Started playing the blues when I was 15. Uh, but the uh, the tunes would have been when I was, you know, uh, 10 or 11 or something like that. And so now you you certainly play tunes. We'll get into your recording career now. Uh, that's what you focus on. Some of them have got the bluesy edge, and you do have some blues songs as well, yeah, but your your focus is on playing tunes, is it, mainly? Pretty much, pretty much. And I enjoy... I enjoy backing songs as well. A couple of the groups that I that I play in, quite, especially the Unwanted, is actually mostly songs. So I, I do a lot of song backing in that, and I enjoy that in in different styles: cross harp and uh, major seven cross harp, or or sometimes in first position. And, and you mentioned there that you played some some other instruments. I know you play um, banjo, as you say. You play concertina. And did you, you did you start playing these at that age as well, and, and sort of learn them in tandem, or did they come later? I was the music was pretty big in the family. My dad was a was a fine pianist, and, and had an older brother who was a musician. And they started me on violin when I was seven, and I have absolutely no recollection of that whatsoever. So it must have been a fairly unforgettable experience. But uh, I was eight when they when I started taking piano lessons. So I had a few years first with my dad, and then he packed me off to a piano teacher. After that, that didn't stick. And then with you know with the folk music came along. I was about ten or eleven when I started on the banjo and the ukulele, and and over the years spent a little time on the guitar, uh, mandolin. But uh, concertina came along. I was looking for one when I was about twelve. Where I grew up in Culver City was where the MGM movie theater was, and in 1968 they sold off a lot of their props and costumes and things. And I went down hoping that I find a concertina, and there was one big soundstage full of musical instruments of of. Uh, harpsichords and concertinas and everything. And I thought, oh, great. Picked one up. And none of them had any reeds in them. Harpsichords had no strings in them because, of course, in the movies, the actors couldn't really play these things. So they would just be squeezing and pushing the buttons with no reeds in it. And, and there'd be a, usually a piano accordion would dub over the sound. So I, I didn't get my uh, concertina then, but I was about 19 or 20 when I first finally got a concertina. So that's when I started playing that instrument. And yeah. then the jaw harp, I was I was around around that same age, 2021, 20, when a great player named Larry Hanks uh, gave me my first jaw harp. So it's another instrument I really love. Yeah, so the, the concertina and the jaw harp, as you say, they're both reed instruments. Do you see some similarities with the harmonica? Yeah, I, absolutely, definitely. It's that whole free reed fascination, something about it, you know, something about the buzz you get off it that uh, I really like, whether it's the harmonica or the jaw harp or even the concertina, you know, you can you feel those 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 reeds playing and it's a, it's a great, uh, you know, you know yourself, it's a great feeling. Yeah, and and you play quite a lot with a rack, don't you? Play you play the certainly banjo and the concertina with harmonica on a rack. So that's a skill you developed uh, for a long time, isn't it? Playing those instruments together. Yeah, first time I had a rack on, I was I think fifteen. I was into jug band music. I was listening to Jim Queskin's jug band, and I thought, man, I want a washboard. So I got a an old fashioned washboard and put straps on it, and got ten thimbles for my fingers and uh, a rack for the harmonica and put on the uh, Jim Queskin record and 
started playing, and it took about two seconds for all the thimbles to go flying all over the room. It just didn't work. So uh, I put it away for years and years. And uh, during Pumpkinhead, which would have been from about 73 through 77 or something, I played the concertina and harmonica, but not on the rack. And it was it was after, after I left Pumpkinhead or after Pumpkinhead broke up that I would try it with the harmonica and concertina uh, every once in a while. It didn't work. But finally, one night, I was up late one night and uh, tried it out and it clicked. And I was so afraid that if I went to bed, I would wake up the next morning forgotten. So I stayed up all night playing and, and actually dancing around the kitchen playing until the sun came up and then I kind of knew I had it. So that would have been about 78, 78 or 79 that I started playing on the rack. Yeah, so it's something you do as a more of a one-man show thing, isn't it? You, you did a, a nice streaming concert recently, which I'll, which I'll put a clip on on the on the front page of the podcast where you're playing concertina and the banjo on the, with the rack on the harmonica. I'm very interested in you know how you develop that because we don't get that many good rack players, and I think you do do it very well. So, any tips about how to play the harmonica well on a rack? One of the things that might have inspired it was that I grew up with uh, listening to a lot of symphonies. As my dad, you know, he, he played uh, sort of the late classical and romantic period, uh, like Chopin and late Beethoven and Liszt and, and Mendelssohn, these guys, but also listened to the symphonies. So, you know, I, I had this big sound and, and, and listening to him play, lying under the piano when I was a little kid, going to sleep with this big waterfall of sound of Chopin and, and Beethoven coming down. I kind of got this, what I really grew to like was a, a lot of noise, <laughs> a lot of sound, big sound, you know, and so playing the uh, on the rack with the harmonica with the concertina or the banjo kind of gives a big sound so i guess one of the tips would be just uh it's it, sometimes i say i do it because i can make a lot of noise that way but it, and it's kind of that way but it's think symphonically it, it if you spend time on it it like like anything the the tool should kind of disappear and just leave you with the rack more or less disappears if it's if the rack fits right and you played it long enough and you can just kind of forget about it and it's the same with uh, playing harmonica in any case focus on getting a good tone focus on playing from your down from your diaphragm and get a really res full resonant tone and that's that's important with a rack or without a rack but especially with the rack because you have the advantage of being able to cup the harmonica to to moderate the, the tone so just play with a really resonant tone yeah i mean it's something that i dip in and out of and i'm currently i'm currently dipping into it again and i always sort of try it for a while and then kind of give up on it a little bit so i feel i've never quite cracked it but it sounds like i need to stay up all night like you were saying you did but yeah, it's that, you know, it's obviously doing the two things at once. And I mean, listening to yourself, when you're playing tunes, I think it works quite well in in doing that, doesn't it? Because you've got obviously the tune you can play on, on the harmonica, on the instrument, maybe play them in tandem. And then you can do a little bit of chordal backup on the harmonica as well. And is that how you sort of approach, you know, playing it, you know, playing tunes on? Yeah, especially with the concertina, I, I, the 
The first concertina that fell into my lap was an English concertina, which is what I play. That's not the, the type of concertina that's usually played in Ireland. You know, it's it's not the, the, the push-pull system like a harmonica or the Irish concertina. It's it's same note, push and pull. And then when I finally came over here and saw what people mostly play, I, what I like about the Anglo concertina is the rhythm that you develop in the bellows because you're going in and out just like you get rhythm from your breathing in and out. But I saw no sense in copying the in and out pattern of the Anglo concertina on my English concertina. It just didn't make sense. But at this time in the in this early 70s, mid 70s, I was playing regularly with Joe O'Dowd, who he great. He was a great fiddle player from Sligo here and actually the father of Jamie O'Dowd, who I play with now. And Joe had a great bowing pattern. The Sligo bowing style is a really interesting style. It's, it's sort of a combination of long bow and short bow. You'll have phrases of so many notes, five or six notes maybe on the one bow stroke and then other part of the tune depending on what's called for you'll have uh, a short strokes to put more rhythm to it and and so i used to when the two of us would play together i would just watch his bow hand watch how the the, the bow would go up and down and try and emulate that bowing pattern so that's that's the kind of rhythm that i'm putting into the concertina is based on the sligo uh bowing patterns. But when I'm playing, I, I think of sometimes I'll play the tune. Uh, sometimes I'll play drones. I also kind of channel the the Ilian pipes, the Irish pipes, with the uh, drones and regulators. Uh, also, the, the Irish pipes, the Ilian pipes, they're played with the right wrist plays keys that play chord accompaniment. And so with the, with the Ilian pipes, you have the right wrist is playing a chord accompaniment, and you have the drones, and you have the chanter playing the melodies. So, so uh, you know, I listened to a fair bit of alien pipes and use that with the concertina because like the pipes, the concertina, the English concertina can play drones and can play chords. So it's a combination of cording and droning and playing the melody or a bit of harmony sometimes. So that's kind of what I'm attempting on the English concertina and harmonica. Yeah, and it's good to see you playing it on different instruments, you know, like a banjo and a concertina, because quite often, you know, people do it, well, usually people do it with a guitar, yeah, so it can work with other instruments as well. Oh, Absolutely. Sure, people do it with the with the piano. I saw Howard Levy didn't use a rack, but both he and Larry Adler saw them both in performances. Different one when Howard in the states at a Bach convention, and and uh, and Larry at one of the festivals in in Germany. But both of them were playing the harmonica, holding the harmonica with the right hand and backing himself up on the piano with the left hand. Both of them were great at it. Talking again about your, your move to Ireland, so you're saying it's a, it was the love of the music. That's quite a commitment to your music to say I love the music so much. I'm going to go and I'm going to go and move to Ireland. So that's what that's what that's what prompted that move. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was actually just came over on a holiday when I got to Sligo. The couple that uh, we formed Pumpkinhead with had been living here since '71. I met them in in LA in around 1970, and uh, we became good friends pretty quickly. And uh, I was telling about the great time I had in Sligo. So in '71, they moved over here, and uh, then when I came over with my partner in '73, we met up, started playing together, and we really liked the sound of it. And Tom, the uh, the other fellow in the group, said that well, there's this song contest in Letter Kenny coming up two weeks after. After our return flight, uh, he said, I reckon we have a chance we might win it. And uh, so we, we just said, well, why not? You know, we didn't have money to buy another plane ticket if we missed the plane, but we, you know, we liked the sound that we got. So we didn't, we didn't catch the flight home. And instead of a three-week vacation, I was here for eight years. So we won the festival and that kind of gave us a bit of money and a recording contract and a manager. These friends of yours in Pumpkinhead, were they from the U.S. as well? They were, yeah. 
so you you all won a what an Irish music competition all, all from the US. Yeah, yeah, all, all yanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Tom was a great songwriter, so so it was it wasn't just traditional music. We, we did one of the things we did was a tune, all right, or a song and a tune. But the other one was one of Tom's songs, and he was a great songwriter. So so yeah. we had we had that as well. So so as you say, you joined Pumpkinhead in '73, and you had a single out, "Shepherd and Son." Was that one of your first recordings out? That was the very first recording. That was actually the first song that Tom ever wrote. Pumpkinhead were pretty successful, yeah. You... Yeah, we, we we didn't starve anyway, so we had a, we had a good run of it for the few years that we were together. Great. And was this your first kind of full time band as as a musician, or were you doing things in the U.S. before you came over to Ireland? That was the first time I was a full time musician. But back in L.A., I was playing with a fellow named Bob Baxter, guitar player and a guitar teacher, and he was the head of the McCabe's Music School at McCabe's Guitar Shop, and I was working there as well. So the two of us formed a group together called the Scorpions of death <laughs> so we, we know we had a, we played a few gigs at McCabe's and we actually uh, opened for T-Bone Walker at mm-hmm. the Ashgrove and it was a three night engagement and on the first night Friday night Bob uh, developed a blister on his, one of his left fingers in the first set and kind of sliced it the second set so he he bowed out and the uh, the next two nights I uh, opened solo for T-Bone Walker and I played harmonica and concertina and tin whistle and they were very nice. <laughs> they, they were very tolerant of me. And in 75, you won the All-Ireland Harmonica Championship. That's right. That was in Letterkenny. Oh, no, Buncrana. Sorry, in Buncrana. So they still have this uh, this harmonica category, don't they, in the in the competition over there? They do, and and over the years, uh, they've always had the the what they call the, over here the mouth organ or the diatonic harmonica, and that's always from from the start. I think they've had that, but over the years, the uh, chromatic harmonica today they might have a chromatic harmonica category, but back then the chromatic harmonica was included in the miscellaneous instruments along with mandolins and other non traditional type instruments. But yeah, the harmonica is, is still going on. All right, in competitions. Good to see. And and so you with Pumpkinhead, you say for eight years, and you stayed playing with them through the seventies. Uh, no, we the, the group was only together. We formed in seventy three, and we broke up around seventy seven or so. After we broke up, I started playing with Johnny Moynihan. He was in a lot of early, some of the early folk groups. He was in uh, a Sweeney's Men would be the first major group that he was in. And subsequently, he was in Planksty and Dedanen. We teamed up for a couple of years till I moved to the States in 1980. Johnny and I, we played around the country. And so next in your albums is the, um, was this the Jig in the Blues album you did next? That's right, yeah. to the States in 1980. We did a lot of back and forth. Was in the San Francisco area for a couple of years, New York for a couple of years, then uh, back to Spittle in Connemara for like three years or so. And then in 1978, we moved to Virginia when I started working at Honer. And it was while 
working at Honer that turns out that Frankie had a mutual friend who was a co-worker of, with my wife, who's a nurse in Virginia at the time. And so we kind of hooked up again after years. We hadn't, we hadn't seen each other. And so we started playing together in Virginia in the mid-late 80s and early 90s, early, when was it? I guess the late 90s, early knots, we were playing together, did some tours in the States together. And then well, we all moved back to Ireland around the same time. And it was shortly after we moved back that uh, Frankie and I got together to record Jig the Blues with Tim Eady. The, the, the next group uh, joined us would have been uh, The Unwanted. And we, we more songs, we did some tunes as well. I played with a few other folks in Ireland since I came back as well. Sean Kane is a, is a, a singer. I played with his band for a while and did a few things, uh, guesting with Didonan, and then later on with New Road, put that together. And that's more focused on the tunes. So that was that was good fun playing with pipes and fiddle. Uh, the unwanted you mentioned there some uh, some great songs on those two albums. I really enjoyed those two, particularly the the recent one, which is it were your latest album, the Payday one in two thousand first album with, with The Unwanted, you've got some old time songs and they like shove the pig's foot further into fire and the sort of blues one on the This Morning Blues and... There's, there's some great tunes on there and like you say some singing as well as well so it's a nice mixture so the unwanted band really good yeah so that, that's your current band then is it and you're still working with those guys uh yeah in fact we're we're going to be uh playing uh next month a virtual concert with uh leonard padolek runs the the home roots tour series in canada and i think we're going to be getting together for the first time the three of us to play together for that next month but that that's still active and the the uh, the uh, new road is we haven't done anything for a while, but you never know things might come along. I also spent some time uh, after moving back in two thousand five playing with Arcady, another kind of tune based band. Uh, Johnny McDonough, Johnny Ringo McDonough started that band, uh, Baron Player. I think a, a lot of people now getting really interested in playing traditional music on the harmonica, myself included. And you know, what what is it you think that you know why the harmonica works so well on that sort of music? Well, I think uh, the diatonic harmonica is, is really the only one that I play. I, I never really got too far along on the chromatic. And the chromatic has a lot to go for it. And, and uh, Mick Kinzel and I have a, good, a lot of fun slagging each other on one playing the chromatic and the other the diatonic for the tunes. Certainly the, the chromatic is great because you have all the notes. But I like the diatonic because of the expression, because you can slur notes and, and bend notes. And a lot of Irish fiddling and all the all the instruments, you know, you have a lot of this, these kind of glissandi and, and and putting expression into the into the tune, into the notes, and that's I think what the the diatonic harmonica is really good at. With the Irish musicians, you, you're finding they're really 
welcome him to the harmonica. You know, they like what is probably not that traditional instrument in Irish music, although maybe it is given the fact that they've had this uh, this competition and some really good Irish players over the years. But you find that the harmonica is well accepted as well in, in the Irish music scene. Oh, it is. It is. Uh, th- there's not many that play my type of harmonica. Most of the harmonica players here in Ireland play. There's a few, of course, that play the chromatic, but more of them will play the tremolo harmonica. And I, once again, the tremolo harmonica in the tuning that's played over here, you pretty much have all the notes, at least all the all the diatonic notes, and you don't have the missing notes that you have in the bottom of the, the Richter tune. But I kind of like overcoming the limitations, and I do that partly with a few different tunings that I use. But one of the things that, that really has, has helped me play the diatonic in sessions, for years I just played a regular blues harp or marine band or super vamper uh, Richter model and never really loud enough. And I would just really go through reeds in, in no time at all, just trying to be heard and nearly trying to hear myself. Those fiddles are loud, aren't they? <laughs> oh, they are. It was while at Honer, I, I was messing about and I wanted to make a harmonica that had a, a switch on it so that it could be with a lever out, it would be a, a single reed harmonica and push the lever in, it'd be an octave harmonica. So I, I used a 260 10-hole chromatic and uh, dispensed with the, the uh, spring and then had, and I used the, the slide was actually a modified chord harmonica slide which was which was kind of a, a design that uh, chamber juan came up with it had it more had more holes cut in it i all i just had to do is cut a few more holes and i could i could work it so that with a slide out single read push it in and you're playing octave and it was it was kind of cool i built it on the 260 comb and mouthpiece but then just at a whim i took the slide off and just put the mouthpiece straight onto the comb. And the difference in volume, because, of course, the chromatic mouthpiece is a much bigger hole than the size hole on, say, a marine band, but the actual size of the hole that, that drives the reed is much smaller because you've got two of them uh, on the mouthpiece hole. But taking the whole slide mechanism out, you end up with a, a mouthpiece opening that's like nearly twice the size of a of a 10-hole diatonic. And that really makes a big difference in the the volume that you can get out of it. Plus, mounting it on the, a big chromatic comb, and of course, I had to modify the comb to suit the resonance of the high octave reeds and all. But so, is this an octave harmonica? It's an octave harmonica, and that's what I play mostly when I'm in a session. I started off with the auto valve reed plates. The auto valve was tuned like the Marine Band, but it was an octave harmonica. Mounted the auto valve reed plates on the 260 uh, harmonica comb and mouthpiece because they're the same reed scale, so they, they fit. And then it sounds like a melodion, and you get great volume. And with this style harmonica, I can be heard in a big session, even with even with accordions and banjos. You know, I'm right in there. So that's that's really made a big difference in being able to play the the diatonic harmonica in a session because. Even with you know other instruments, chromatic harmonicas, usually in a big session, you're not going to be heard. And some some players will use a, a small uh, amplifier, which is sometimes not as fun. You know, it's much more fun if when you're when you're you're making your own noise, it's loud enough, and you're there with the instruments. So, so an octave uh, an octave harmonica or an auto valve, as you say. So I, I own most types of harmonica, but not one of those. So so just explaining again exactly what that is. You've got two reeds tuned an octave apart to play one note, and have you got that for the blow and draw so you've got you know the sort of the two different octave notes on the blow and the draw right if you if you start with say a chromatic and the slide
slide out. You have blow and draw, single read, instrument all the way up. You push the slide in and it raises at a semitone. So instead of the bottom reed plate being a semitone higher, it's an octave higher. Yeah. And then you don't use the slide. There's no slide. Yeah. So it's it's two reeds going all the time. But it's the same tuning, uh, the auto valve, as the marine band. So as far as a learning curve, it was easy for me. I already knew the Richter tuning. So, but you're playing the octave at the same time, so you don't need to press the slide in to play the octave. I, I threw the slide away. Right, yeah, so no slide. Yeah, you just take the slide off, and yeah. therefore you're getting the octaves. Yeah, you're getting the octave sound all the time. And, and because there's no, there's no slide bass or the whole mechanism is gone, the, the dimensions of the mouthpiece hole are the actual size of the air that's going into the harmonica. So there's a tremendous amount of air you could actually put into it. So so how did you get your replay an octave up? Well, the auto valve is tuned that way. Okay, it's from the auto valve harmonica, yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, it's been discontinued, which kind of broke my heart. The auto valve was actually, I think that was originally produced by the Pohl factory, P-O-H-L, which was one of the factories that, that Honer bought out and uh, brought their tooling over to, to Trussingen and started some of the models they continued making, including the uh, 364 and 365 Marine Band. That was originally, the pole factory was in the town of Knittlingen. And so the uh, the 364 and 365 and the uh, Autovel were all made in Knittlingen and they used a different kind of reed scale. In other words, that, that Autovel was being produced in the late 1800s continuously and it was really sad to see it go but this is still your your main this octave harmonica is still your main harmonica you play is it for tunes not for songs so much so so you you you're basically well making these or or maintaining these from from previous replays you have yeah and i also make them out of chromatic um replays like maybe a a 280 16 hole chromatic you know and i'll cut sections you know for the low octave i'll cut the lowest 10 uh reeds and then the highest octave i'll cut higher up you know and retune the reeds or or change the reeds if necessary uh and then cut down the comb you know to to make another 10 hole so some of the harmonicas are, are like that but it's the same concept as uh, auto valve read plates on your 260 comb. Right. Wow. That must be quite a lot of effort to put together a harmonica. And we'll, we'll get into your customization skills shortly. But uh, uh, yeah, so you've obviously got, got the capability, but it's quite a daunting task for uh, for some people to, to consider doing that. So let, let's get into your uh, your history with Hona then. So you worked for Hona for 18 years, yeah? Like, That's right, yeah. You went back to the US, you moved to Virginia. So how did that come about? Were you invited to work, work for them? or I was, yeah. When we lived in New York from... 82 through 84, I was working for an accordion company in, in Manhattan and uh, working on accordions. And then in 84, we moved back to Ireland where I, I uh, set up a little accordion shop in Connemara, which was, it was a marvelous place to live. There was great music. I was playing, you know, great music on the weekends and it was a wonderful place to live. And we just very, were slowly running out of money. <laughs> Because nobody was making much money back then in the, in the 80s over here. So it was in early 87, the fellow that was managing the accordion service department for Honer in Virginia, the North American or U.S. headquarters for Honer was in at this time in Virginia. Uh, he retired and, and so Honer was looking around for someone to replace him and rang up my old boss in New York and said, do you know any accordion technicians? And they said, well, there's this guy in Ireland. Maybe he might be interested. So so they called me up and, and I said, I'll come over and give it a try and liked it, liked the company. It was great company to work for at the time so moved back over to the states again so you were working on accordions when you first joined them then 
Well, you know, they, they knew that, that I also was, was big into working on harmonicas. They had me working uh, two days a week on harmonicas and three days a week on accordions was kind of the, the idea. And at the time, I could manage the accordion department on my own because uh, it was all good quality German accordions that we were selling. And, and over the years, my things that I took on kind of got expanded. And, you know, I became the harmonica and accordion product manager. And I was working on uh, product development. And then I was their main liaison in China when we started getting accordions and harmonicas made in China. So I went to China for once or twice a year for my entire time there so mm-hmm. so there's a lot of different kind of things that I was doing so and so you were quite instrumental uh, in, in improving the quality of the Horner harmonicas is that right and I think you did a bit of work with Steve Baker were improving that quality as well did you I was the only guy that was working for Horner really that that knew both how to work on them you know how they work and also how to play them trouble began in i guess the late 80s the tolerances had kind of slipped you know the the read to slot tolerance mm-hmm. had kind of enlarged just too much and they were they were pretty much hard to play i was complaining about it and steve was complaining about it and it fell to me to uh, come up with new uh, specifications and new toolings uh the honor usa actually paid for the new replate stamping tooling for Germany. I had a lot of old harmonicas that were from the service department because sometimes it'd be that the policy was if if it costs more to repair an old harmonica, especially an old chromatic, than to replace it at a discount. We would do that. So there's a lot of old harmonicas lying around, and I could I could study them. I had a, a what do you call that? A microfiche projector. I caught it when it was being sent out to the dump when they switched to CD-ROM for their records and put that into my into my workshop. And I was able to to put read read plates on the micro microfilm or microfiche projector and take photos of them. You get a good idea of what what the tolerance was I had harmonicas, old honers, new honer production, and from the competition, you know, there was Herring and Suzuki and some of these others. I could take photographs of it and send it to Germany and say, look, this is what we used to do. This is what we do now. This is what our competition is doing. So because Honer USA, we sold about half of, of Honer's world production. So we had a bit of clout, I suppose. And so we got them to just overhaul the, their whole production. And the other thing that we had in, in Virginia was uh, a bunch of Herb Schreiner harmonicas, which were basically marine bands with special covers made in the 1950s, a signature model. And I think the story was that the Herb Schreiner had, had kind of died early. And so we had, there were thousands of these harmonicas for years. And by the time I started working there, there were still a good few hundred. So I was able to send a dozen of them back to Germany that they could examine these, uh, what, really good harmonicas from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we had to kind of fight and argue to get the tolerances down. They say, oh, no, we can't we can't have it that tight. It's too hard for the workers. But we, we came up with tolerance specifications that everyone could agree on, and, and that made a big difference for the playability on the, on the harmonicas. You're credited with inventing embossing. Is this is this part of the story? And, and would you would you credit yourself with inventing embossing? Well, well yes, actually. It was, it was in the 1970s, in the mid-70s, I was living here in Ireland, and a friend had given me a photocopy of, of a 
of a repair manual for the American reed organ, like the harmonium. In this manual, there were line drawings of special reeds, reeds that were that were like a kind of a cross-shaped reed and a trident-shaped reed, you know, that, that has three prongs on the end. And, and I was fascinated with these reeds and wondering what they would sound like. So I, I made one of these reeds, it was an accordion reed that was like a, shaped like a trident, you know, one reed at the back at the rivet end, but branching off to three, three ends. I spent the whole day cutting and filing, put it together, and it worked. But the, the tolerance reed, the slot tolerance was not that great. And so I didn't want to start all over again. And I didn't think I could probably do any better the next time. So that's when I came up with the idea of actually embossing the slot to close up the tolerance. And it worked. And then fast forward back in, I was working for Honer, and we had this problem with the uh, bad tolerance on the reeds. The project for the new tooling was, it took probably nearly a year bef- between the research and, and uh, coming up with the, the designs, the new tooling and all. So in the meantime, we had to deal with these harmonicas, especially with a couple of the early customizers. Joe Felisco was, uh, he was probably the first of the diatonic customizers that I would know about. There was a few others before him, but doing chromatic. Dick Gardner was, was around for years and years for chromatic customizing. So, uh, Joe would send these harmonicas back, and and not just Joe, but players would send her new marine bands and diatonics back that, that were leaky. It was at that point that I remembered this technique I developed in Ireland on the accordion reed and started embossing it, and it worked pretty good. So I, I taught the technique to Sissy, who was actually running the harmonica service department at the time. And we were uh, embossing all these returns that the customizers and, and players are sending back. And uh, that went on for a good few weeks, but more and more were coming back. So it was at that point that I started telling people about it. I think it was in 95 when I when I first posted a message on to Harpel describing this technique. And it caught on pretty quick after that. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are very familiar with it now. So you've done some workshops uh, on customization quite recently, and I'll, I'll put a link up for that so people can find that on, on YouTube. So that's an invaluable resource if people want to check out going going back to the source yourself to see how you do it. But if you could just explain very briefly what embossing is, and then obviously people can refer to the video for exactly how you do it. Okay. One feature of a, of a, of a good read whether it's a harmonica reed or an accordion reed, is that the the fit of the of the reed within its slot be nice and tight. That is the tolerance, the space between the reed and the slot wants to be as close as possible. The same with the jaw harp as well. Really good jaw harps, you know, they they have a very close tolerance between the, the tongue and the and the slot. The technique I developed was to actually uh, I called it burnishing was the the term I started using, but embossing was the term that was adopted using a two to push down on the upper edge of the reed slot that raises a burr on the facing the, the side facing the reed so it actually helps to close up the space tighten up the tolerance uh, between the uh, the reed and the, and the slot uh, so that alone uh, improves the the performance the response and the the clarity of tone and the volume. But there's another important thing that, that embossing does is it puts at that, that burr acts as a kind of a sharp edge. It's this sharp edge that I think the way it works is that it, it defines the moment that the reed cuts off the airflow. 
this is something that's, that's known, uh, well known in uh, in both accordion and the jaw harp manufacturer that the uh, sometimes on accordion reeds that the side, the edges of the reed will be thinner than the middle of the reed, and on jaw harps where you really want a good response and a lot of overtones, the edges of the of the reed and the and the frame can be as sharp enough to actually cut yourself on it. And when you define that moment when the air is cut off and then opened up again like that, that it makes a more um, responsive read, increases the volume and the response time and the clarity of the read. There's more signal and less noise. So embossing does this as well by raising that little edge on the inside of the read slot to give you that kind of a sharp, uh, defining that one point when the read cuts off the slot. So it's, yeah, it, there's two benefits to embossing. On that, I mean, what would you say is the importance of people setting up the harmonicas? I think some people are maybe a bit daunted about doing it. They're afraid of breaking it. But do you think it's something that people should be doing to all the harmonicas for sure, particularly now where the quality of the harmonicas is is maybe better than it, it was for a time a few years ago? Well, um, I haven't bought any new harmonicas for, for years, but... Uh, you've got you've got thousands of replays from all <laughs> Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but I have had a chance to play a few, and I've done some work for a friend of mine who sent me some Thunderbirds and when the first owner, I think it was a marine band, you luck, that was with, with the improved reeds and with the uh, bamboo laminate combs. And so I've played some of those, and, and some of them are great harmonicas, and, and you can play great music without doing a thing to these. That said, pretty much, no matter how good a production model harmonica is, uh, usually hand-finishing the instrument, whether it's setting up the reeds or, or doing a bit of embossing or chamfering the reed itself, little things like that can only make it better but certainly it's not absolutely necessary with a lot of the modern harmonicas that that you modify the harmonica because uh, i mean there's some of the players i remember phil wiggins I remember he was playing at one of our parties, uh, the Honer party at the at the president's house. He, we'd given him, this was uh, probably in uh, 1996, we had, because we had these gold-plated centennial marine bands with a really bad <laughs> replace, right? They were really leaky. But uh, I remember Phil could make even, even that harmonica when the marine band was at its worst quality. Phil could get a great sound out of it. It's also, it's not just the harmonica, but the better the harmonica, the better the music. But, you know, yeah. some folks can, can play great music out of nothing. Well, I, I think it's all that old adage, isn't it? You'd rather hear a great player play a bad instrument rather than a bad player play a great instrument. So. Sure, sure. So, yeah, so with customization, as I say, I'll put some links. You, you're, you're going to appear at the uh, Harmonica UK Chromatic Weekend, which is coming up in June. So you, you'll be you'll be showing some customization there as well for, for Chromatic specifically. So people can come along to that weekend. It's an online event and check that out. So obviously you, you're doing Chromatics on that weekend. So anything particularly different about the Chromatic? setup? Uh, well, as far as the reeds themselves, it's the same principle, you know, in in, in adjusting the, the gapping of the reed and the curvature of the reed. And, and, you know, if you want to get into embossing and chamfering, it's, uh, it, it applies to chromatics as well. But uh, uh, one of the really important things about chromatics, 
where a source of air leak that can cause problems with chromatics is, is in the uh, slide assembly. What I was thinking, the format that I would do is just to start off and see what the players want to talk about, what they want to know about. I think how to service the instrument for sure, how to how to take the uh, the slide assembly apart and clean it and and put it back together so that it's airtight. And, and mm. I don't know, do they want to get into uh, actually taking the replace off, which is no problem when the replace is screwed on, but with, with nailed on uh, uh, replace. You know, there's there's things that we could do, but there mightn't be enough time for that. I would basically just see what the players want, and and then talk a little bit about little tweaks you can do with the valves with the valves to help the valves a bit. Uh, another thing that that you did at home is you developed the XB40 harmonic as well. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk a little bit about that harmonic and the concept there? The concept is is the idea is a harmonica that all the notes will bend like a regular blues harmonica will bend. All the notes can bend, blow and draw and bend to to any desirable amount. It's a an idea that I first heard about. It would have been around 1981 or 82, I guess. My wife and daughter and I were living in the near Berkeley, the East Bay, East San Francisco Bay area, and uh, Will Scarlett was living around not so far away, and he called in one day and showed me this idea that he had a little single read uh, prototype with just the three reeds on it, the one mouthpiece hole where you could bend the blow and the draw. Brilliant idea. There's been a few folks, I think, who came up with the idea as well. Will might have been the first, but uh, Brendan Power came up with it independently, I think, and as did Richard Slay. In any case, 10 years or so later, I was working for Honer. You know, I had all these parts, harmonica parts around, so I decided to, to give it a try to see would it work actually making a harmonica. It worked, but I found that there was a problem with using this system. In other words, the way it, the way it works is, you know how on a standard blues harp, you can bend a reed within one hole if it's higher pitched than yep. the other reed. You can bend down to the lower pitched reed. So with a an extra reed with with no offset that'll allow the lower reed, say on a, uh, the blow reed, on say the four blow on a on a marine band. If you tune the this extra reed below the four blow, then you can bend the blow reed as well. But when I put a, together a harmonic like this, I found that that bending a note on one hole would cause some of these reeds, extra reeds in other holes, to start playing spontaneously, and then you have all these reeds going at the one time. And it was when I came up with a design that would eliminate that problem that gave me the idea to actually come up with a design and patent it. So I, I, I took out a patent just on that valve system that I could uh, control that. Basically, an old bending harmonica, you could you could bend the draw on the blow note. That's right, yeah. So is that that's not manufactured anymore, is it, by home? No, it was it was a few years back when uh, the same time the auto valve was discontinued, the 260 10-hole chromatic was discontinued, a lot of the uh, tremolo and octave echo models were discontinued. They just kind of really cut the product line way back because a lot of these these models just weren't selling enough in their not economically viable I suppose. yeah yeah it was like it was the, the whole time that i was there you know there was always threats to you know wanting to, to cut the product line this down out and that out my argument was that you know you that you shouldn't really look at these lower selling instruments on their own or, or look at any of the instruments on their own but just look at the whole range in terms of brand loyalty people would play with say play a honer because we had all these different bots and there were i forget how many different models not counting different keys there were at this time in, in the 80s there was you know maybe 30 40 or more mm. totally different models so 
But but now you're getting customizers who are certainly working still with this concept. I know Brendan Powers just done this recently, this slip slider harmonic. Yeah, yeah. Which is the same idea, yeah, because you, you're able to bend both the blow and draw notes by moving the this kind of adjustable replay. That the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same idea as the XB40, basically, isn't it, from what I understand? The construction, of course, is totally different, but the, yeah, yeah. the idea of providing more reads, pairing them with a read where you can bend it, like, say, like say on your four blow once again normally you can't bend that down but with the slip slider you know you can push the the button in and and the the read plate will actually move to another yeah. position where you have now have a lower read there where you can bend the blow read so great idea and and then the the real achievement is to make something like that airtight yeah because once again like when you have a slide mechanism there's always potential for air loss and that's just like the problem with chromatics yeah it'd be interesting to, to try one out but yeah again uh Brendan, I've had on the show. He's uh, done. He comes up with all sorts. Of- oh, he's just yeah. such an inventive mind. Amazing how he comes up with it all. And I know you. So you played with him and uh, and Mick Kinsella in this uh, in in the Triple Harp bypass, didn't you? And you? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we yeah. did a few tours, and it was it was great crack. Berman was always coming up with, with new ideas. And like, I remember one night we were getting ready to play a gig and we were backstage in the dressing room and Brendan came up with a new tuning just like right then and there and just before going on he retuned a harmonica to this new tuning and then went straight on stage with us and played it and played it great. That's uh, gutsy. <laughs> I think he dreams about harmonica. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the questions I ask each time, Rick, is if you had 10 minutes to practice, what would you spend those 10 minutes doing? I would. The first thing that comes to mind is what I would do, I would go all the way back to basics as if I couldn't play the harmonica at all. What does it feel like to put it in my mouth and, and breathe through the harmonica? When we get to a certain level of accomplishment, you know, we it, sometimes we kind of little bits and pieces of, of the beauty of, of the playing might get subdued or forgotten, you know, and taking back all the way to the very beginning allows me or allows one to kind of rediscover the tonality your embouchure playing, you know, how you're breathing, what your what your posture is, rediscover the, the rhythm of breathing in and out, playing a single note, what does a single note sound like? Listen to it. And that, you know, I like to do that with, with all my instruments from time to time when I, I just start off with one note and see what it feels like, see what it sounds like and, and rebuild it from there. And of course you ten minutes is plenty of time to, to recap the whole learning process from the first time you ever picked up a harmonica. So I think that's I think that's a valuable exercise. Yeah, going really going back to basics and say something you still do now. Yeah, let's talk going to the last section now. Talking talking about gear a little bit. We've already talked on gear um, to some extent, but what harmonicas are you playing now? You're saying in sessions you're playing these octave harmonicas, and you know any other particular harmonicas you're playing nowadays? In sessions, mostly that would be the only one. Sometimes I might play. There's one tune, an Irish uh, hornpipe called Paul Hapney. It's actually uh, one of the tunes that, that Frankie and I, Frankie and Tim and I recorded on the Chicken the Blues album. And I think we played that, recorded it in the key of D on a G harmonica, or, uh, but it's traditionally played in the key of A, and it really lies nicely in, in cross harp on a regular D harmonica down at the low end. If you play a regular D harmonica in a session, you're going to be heard. There's a few tunes, a few tunes that I might use a regular harmonica 
harmonica, other than the session tunes playing in a small ensemble or solo or on stage with a microphone. I'll often use just a 10-hole harmonica in one of a number of different tunings. I really like uh, playing the, the major seventh harmonica. I started tuning my harmonicas to that about, I think it was 1968, when I started messing with that tuning. So, so the major seven, that's with the normal Richter tuning in the bottom octave and just the raised seventh on the in the five draw and, the, and maybe higher, but the five draw. Yeah, I, what Honda calls country tuning is just with that five draw. I always tune the nine draw as well because I like to play in octaves. That you don't tune up the three blow. No, for the same reason, because I like playing in octaves, and my style of playing, I liked a chordal accompaniment, a, yeah. a bit of vamping, and in that, that three blow that we like the Patty Richter tuning, I guess. You know, it's, it's great for picking up that missing sixth, but you lose the octave and you lose the, the subdominant chord in second position, or the tonic chord in first position, so, so I, I don't use that tuning. Because it's interesting to because I do play a lot of tunes and I, I pretty much exclusively use the Paddy Richter tuning because I like that sixth note in the first position, you know, you know the, the A on the C harmonica on that three blow. Seems to me pretty critical to most tunes. So I, I find that, you know, I, maybe I'm just used to playing it um, very much. But yeah, it's interesting to hear that you don't really feel you need that note. Well, you need that sixth, all right. But the way I get it is I tune the two and three draw notes both down to semitones. The the scale starting on uh, hole one, you read do, re, mi, fa, so, la, do. You're missing the T, the seventh down there, but you get the sixth. So on the, on the three draw, you're selling that down. On a C harmonica, the three draw would be B. That goes down to A. So that's like this, um, that's this, um, what do they call it? The They're calling it easy third. Easy third, yeah, easy third. Yeah, I do have some, a couple of easy third tunes. That's mostly what I, what I use, and even with the octave harp on the single reed harp like the, the marine band style harmonica the seventh note is usually or, or very often is not a really critical note and you can gloss over it uh, or I'll throw a valve on the inside of the fourth hole blow and I can bend the fourth hole blow down the semitone to pick up that missing seventh uh, but it's once again the, the tune will dictate what I use usually it's either that tuning I use or the standard Richter tuning and that depends on what kind of tune what kind of implied chord or what kind of notes are needed so i'll go back and forth or sometimes I'll, I'll do a lot of fast switching of harmonicas as well yeah it's interesting i'll check out that easy third with some tunes i've used it a bit you know i tend to use it for kind of third position stuff but yeah i'll check it out on tunes check it out in first position it's really nice because you can play octaves nearly the whole harmonica you can play in octaves and first position uh, the other great thing is in third position like uh, in irish music say you have a g harmonica draw on the on the on the draw chord on the g harmonica down to the low end you have a d major you you tune the two and three draw down and you're changing that d major to a minor so for a lot of irish tunes a minor tunes mostly the two chords that you'll need to back up an a minor jig or reel is a minor and g major and those are the two chords you now have yeah. same same with, with e minor tunes tune the the d harmonica in the same tuning you draw you hit you get an e minor you blow you get a d major so it's great for third position irish tunes and first position do you play uh, any overblows at all you, you say you're putting valves on to do that uh no 
Well, I, I, Will was uh, Will Scarlett was the first I uh, learned about overblowing, and uh, I kind of practiced it for a while. I think in Pumpkinhead there was just one one song where there was one note that I over that was an overblown note, and on the uh, album the LP that recorded in, in '75 there is one overblown note on it. But I was never very good at it, as they say here. I, I gave it up for a bad job. But it's amazing what what some of the players these days are doing with it. Yeah. What about embouchure? I tongue block and I pucker. And when I'm playing, especially with uh, regular blues harp, I'll go back and forth constantly between, uh, I mean, between tongue blocking and puckering because I, I you know, I, I like the bins uh, and chords you get from puckering, but then I like the vamping techniques and octave playing and other intervals with tongue blocking. So so I always, with, with students, I always say, take some time. You know, I know it feels really weird to try to learn tongue blocking but it's it's a fantastic technique i always recommend people study it but i i use both all the time What about uh, gear, you know, equipment do you use and amplifiers and microphones, anything there? None, really. And all, the, all the bands I've been in, I just play through the PA. So with a with a kind of acoustic mic in front of you? Yeah. So you're really going for that natural sound. So no effect pedals at all, no re- nah. reverb or anything? Nah, no, nothing like that. I leave that to the sound man. So yeah, final question on uh, future plans. You talked about you've got a streaming gig coming up. Uh, so that's your next. You've got some gigs coming up. Then any live gigs coming up? You know, any physical gigs? Sorry, no, nothing, nothing yet. I'm just keeping the head down and trying to play it safe uh, till the coast is clear. There'll be also, uh, I think, uh, Mick and I teach at the Willie Clancy mm-hmm. Summer School this year. The Saturday night concert will be a virtual concert, so that'll be something I'll be recording to send out. I assume it'll be it'll be streamed around the time that the festival would normally be first weekend in July. So that and uh, um, oh, there's a few local uh, live stream things I'm doing. No uh, in-person gigs yet. I'm just kind of biding the time till the coast is clear. Yeah, I'll put, a, I'll put a link onto that William Clancy uh, Festival. I did have Mick Conceller on previously, so yeah, I've talked to Mick and uh, your association with, with him and, and meeting and doing those festivals there. And, and, and over, the last, over the last year in the pandemic, have you been particularly working on anything? anything? Uh, you've been working on your solo stuff, I guess, because you've been uh, locked at home by yourself. Yeah, really, just, just the solo stuff. I'm playing a lot of banjo and harmonica, practicing my drop thumb technique on the banjo which I'm making a bit of progress on coming up with new songs, working on not writing new songs, but finding new traditional songs and just uh, enjoying the time and opportunity to come up with new material and working on harmonica as well. I'm doing a bit of repair work for folks still. Oh yeah. When you're learning a new tune, do you tend to learn that by ear or do you use the dots? I don't use the dots, no. Someone asked someone years ago, do you read music? Do you read the dots? Well, I do, but not enough to hurt my music. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I usually I learn by ear. That's how I learned uh, in sessions. You know, like I played uh, fiddle player and and, and uh, a mandola player, uh, Philip Duffy and Brian McDonough, and I played for every Tuesday for 15 years in in Sligo. And then Leonard Barry and Brian and I played for a few years at a different pub every week, Sligo. And so playing that for that so many years, you know, a lot of tunes. That the great thing about the harmonica is that you can when you learn chording and you learn vamping and you you get the feel of the tune, especially when you know the music all, all right, you can you can do a pretty good job of backing a tune up as you're learning the tune over the course of weeks or, or months. So a lot of the tunes that I played in the session, I just learned over the years. Uh, but the other thing, what I'm really fascinated with a new tune, I just uh, throw it into uh, Transcribe or Amazing Slow Downer and, and slow it down. To a great learning tool is these, these apps. Yeah, they're amazing, aren't they? So, well, let's hope that the sessions come back soon and we can get, can all get back out to those sessions. Really missing those, and it'd be great to uh, attend some sessions over in Ireland. So, so, uh, so, thanks so much for joining me today, Rick Epping. Thanks a lot, Neil. And uh, whenever you make it over to Sligo, call in. And thanks for having me. That's it for episode thirty-seven. Thanks again, everybody. Over to Rick to play us out. 